Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, science, and everything else. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. My latest book, which is out in paperback now, is called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a sentient mushroom who writes science fiction and fantasy, and I have a young adult trilogy. The second book, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak, is out in April. And we are all very excited to read it after reading Victories Greater Than Death, which was such an awesome debut for that um, trilogy. So speaking of things that we're excited about, this is our 100th episode of this podcast. I know. I can't believe it. It's been almost four years. We posted our first episode in 2018. We started by analyzing the first episodes of Star Trek Discovery. So basically, this show has lasted as long as Star Trek Discovery has so far. So here's hoping Whoa. that, you know, we both, both that show and this show continue on into uh, the frontier. And thank you to all of you, the listeners who've been here with us on this journey. Whenever you got into the journey, whenever you joined us is great. Um, for those of you who've been here the whole time, you know that this is a podcast that's totally independently produced. It's independently funded. Um, it's entirely funded by you, the listeners, through Patreon. And we just can't thank you enough for allowing us to do this and come into the studio and record these all the time and just get to share our thoughts and have awesome guests. And um, so it's hard to have an indie podcast in these times, but we're scraping by. We're doing it. Yay. And... This week, we're going to talk about something that's been a huge part of both of our careers, uh, but which we rarely talk about on this show, which is journalism. Um, You may not know this, but both of us have worked as journalists for most of our adult lives. Um, And as a result, you know, we may have spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what exactly Catco publishes on Supergirl (laughs) and what its business model is. Um, You know, there's a ton of reporter heroes and villains in comics and science fiction, and that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. We'll be talking about how the journalist hero has changed over the past century and how science fiction tackles debates about the role of media in our lives. Plus, we'll think about what these stories mean as we watch real-life journalism crumbling and flailing in the teens and 20s. Also, did you notice, by the way, that I just used teens and 20s to describe this decade and the previous decade? I would like more of that. Can we all just start calling this the 20s now? Like, I feel like we need to claim that for this decade. Um, So how do you feel? Are you willing to? They may or may not roar, but they are the 20s. Yeah, I feel like they're. They may be the whimpering 20s. I don't know. We'll find out. (laughs) Yeah, pandemic 20s. Um, (laughs) The terrible 20s. Yeah. And by the way, next week on our audio extra for our patrons, we'll be talking about some of our most memorable experiences as journalists. And by the way, as I mentioned earlier, this podcast is entirely supported by you, the listeners, through our Patreon. Um, And those of you who join the Patreon, you get extras with every episode. There's an audio extra, but we also post essays and conversation prompts on our Patreon. We have a Discord server that we love where people are having all kinds of amazing conversations and teaching us about stuff that I'd never even heard about before. It's freaking great. Um, So anything you can pay to support us. 
um, and support the production of this podcast would be amazing. It's just a couple bucks a month. And to you who are already supporting us, thanks a lot. Um, if you want to find our Patreon, it's on patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. All right, let's start the episode. So one of the things that I'd kind of either never knew or had forgotten was that like a seminal science fiction writer, one of the most important science fiction writers of the 19th century, H.G. Wells, was actually a journalist, although I guess he rarely had characters who were reporters in his fiction. So we know that there's an early connection between journalism and science fiction. When do we actually start seeing heroic journalists showing up in science fiction as major characters? So obviously a really big one here is Superman. And we're just going to make this simple by starting in, you know, the early to mid 20th century. And Superman is the secret identity of a mild-mannered reporter named Clark Kent. This character debuts in the early 40s. We see Clark as being kind of a bumbler. He's not actually a really great journalist because mostly he just covers himself. He just <laughs> writes about what Superman is doing. And to be fair, that's mostly what his boss, Perry White, wants him to do. We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. I want the name of this flying whatchamacallit to go with the Daily Planet like bacon and eggs, franks and beans, death and taxes, politics and corruption. I, I don't think that he would uh, lend himself to any ch cheap promotion schemes, though, Mr. White. Exactly. How would you know that, Kent? Um, uh, um, well, just a uh, first impression. Well, anyway, who's talking cheap? I'll make him a partner if I have to, right? Right, Chief. I want the real story. I want the inside dope on this guy. Has he got a family? Where does he live? So that said, I think we have to look at Superman in the context of the muckraker journalists who would have been really well known in the United States when the comic book debuted. These are people like Ida B. Wells, who was a black journalist active in the late 19th and early 20th century, who reported constantly on lynchings and racist violence when nobody else would. Um, there was Upton Sinclair, who was both a novelist and a journalist, whose very famous 1906 book, The Jungle, uh, revealed the horrifying work conditions that people were dealing with in meatpacking plants. And actually, that book led to a ton of reform. Um, and then there's Nellie Bly, who famously got herself committed to an insane asylum to reveal how abused the inmates were in New York. So interestingly, and this brings us back to H.G. Wells, Nellie Bly was herself inspired by science fiction. Um, so H.G. Wells had published a book in the late 19th century called Around the World in 80 Days, which was this futuristic look at how <laughs> air travel would allow us to go all the way around the world in such a short period of time. And Nellie Bly was like, oh, yeah? Well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually do that. I'm going to take that trip in the late 1880s. And she published a book called Around the World in 72 Days in 1890, showing that it could be done and done even better. 
So <laughs> early on, we 10% see... 10% faster. I know. Ten, take 10% off the top there, bud. So muckrakers like uh, Nellie Bly and Ida B. Wells were journalists who were called this because they were progressive journalists who were kind of fighting for the little guy by uncovering, well, muck. They investigated crime, oppression, all kinds of problems that people were dealing with. So I would argue that in a way, Superman is a muckraker as a superhero, because as a superhero, he sticks up for the little guy, he uncovers corruption, and then as Clark Kent, he basically writes up all the stuff that he's done. So basically, if you put Superman together with Clark Kent, you have one full muckraker. Yeah, well, and in fact, if you read the early Superman comics, like from the late 30s and early 40s, he is constantly going after like these kinds of profiteering schemes, these wartime profiteers, these people who are like, one of his first stories is there are these weapons manufacturers who are trying to start a, you know, start a war so that they can sell more weapons and Superman uncovers their scheme. He's always like, you know, finding like factory workers being oppressed and like Clark Kent does actually do some muckraking in those early Superman comics as well. He actually is finding you know, people being abused and like writing about it for the Daily Planet. It's it's kind of later that Superman only seems to write about himself as like his main topic. <laughs> but originally, I feel like there is an attempt to cash. He show him doing that as as a journalist and as a hero. Yeah. So okay, so that's Superman. That's like 30s, early 40s. When do we see more journalists starting to pop up as major characters in science fiction? So we see some journalists here and there in the mid 20th century, like for example, the interviewer in iRobot. Um, the the collection of stories um, is it's sort of typical like it's a it's a journalist who's come to interview this roboticist and she tells the story and so the reporter character is just kind of us the reader you know it's just a person who gets to be there uh, and ask questions um, and of course there's Spider Man who also covers himself a lot <laughs> it's photojournalism it's true um, yeah so but then things really start to heat up again in the 1970s. Um, And a story that I really want to pinpoint here is the movie Network from 1975, which it's not quite science fiction. It's sort of, I would say it's like a dystopia that's like five seconds into the future. Um, It's a really dystopian look at the birth of the kind of cable news commentary that we get all the time today on Fox. Um, It's sensational. It's intended to provoke emotion. And in fact, the movie network started a huge meme, which you might actually recognize. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! So this is the scene where our previously dry and objective TV anchor loses his mind on live TV, partly because he's been witnessing his newsroom being dismantled by this new young producer played by Faye Dunaway. And right after he has this complete meltdown on TV, which he's thinking is going to be like his swan song, like he's never going to be on TV again after this, 
the producer is freaking thrilled. Like we see Faye Dunaway practically like having an orgasm while she's watching him do this because she finds out that all across the country, everybody is opening their windows and shouting, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And the ratings just go through the roof. And so she turns him into a celebrity and he becomes this like crazed commentator on television. And this so network is very much about the death of so-called good journalism. And we have a character in the story who's like the old good journalist who's been laid off, who's watching this all unfold with this like, you know, look of disgust on his face. Um, but it's also a warning about what TV news might become, you know, just like people screaming opinions and, and being nihilistic just to get eyeballs. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that we get that kind of, you know, quasi-futuristic dystopian view at the same time that like the heroic journalist is becoming a bigger figure in kind of the mainstream imagination. And it's the era of Hunter S. Thompson. It's also the era of Woodward and Bernstein. You know, they obviously become like the heroes of an actual film, All the President's Men, about the Watergate scandal. Yeah, Woodward and Bernstein being the journalists who kind of broke the story about the Watergate break-ins during the Nixon uh, administration. Right. So, you know, is in the middle of this like warning about like what journalism could become, which does seem very prescient in retrospect, is, you know, is it is it weird that we're having that warning at the same time that journalism is having this flowering yeah, it is really interesting that you see something like Network, which is basically saying journalism is dead, while in fact, actual journalism seems to be alive and well. I also think that one of the influences on representations of journalism during this time, especially as we get into the late 70s and 80s, um, really comes out of the alternative media movement in the United States, um, which was really uh, at its height kind of in the 70s with free weekly papers uh, being available in almost every American city. Um, the first alternative free weekly is was The Village Voice, which was founded in 1955. And it was a model that quickly became incredibly popular. And alternative media, these free weeklies that often had incredibly um, amazing reporting in them, they were important because they popularized not just progressive reporting of the muckraking type, but also criticism of media. So it yeah. was media criticizing media. I used to love Nat Hentoff. He was so such a hero. Yeah, he wrote for so long for The Village Voice. And um, I, in fact, worked at a free weekly here in San Francisco, the San Francisco Bay Guardian. And you wrote You were for my them. editor. I know. That was actually kind of how we met in a way. And, you know, the model of those papers was basically the same model as blogs. It was a free paper paid for by advertising. And the way that this starts to come into pop culture starts with a character who you might recognize from the 1980s. I think it's a sad reflection on our society that whenever a new disease appears, the media automatically spread it around far faster than people ever can. Take the epidemic that's threatening us all today. I'm talking, of course, about ads. Only a few days after the first outbreak of ads in the newspapers, we had to suffer ads in magazines, ads on the radio, and of course, the quickest way to catch ads today is simply to turn on your TV. 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 Within seconds, your home will be infected by TV ads. And just look what you've got to suffer. 
Oh my God. That, of course, was Max Headroom from the 1980s show, which is explicitly set five minutes into the future, and it's about an investigative TV journalist named Edison Carter. So tell us more about this classic cyberpunk hero. So the thing that's funny about Max Headroom is that it's kind of another version of Superman because Edison Carter, who is our main character, he's an incredible investigative reporter. He's not mild-mannered like Clark Kent. Um, And he has an accident that leads to part of his consciousness being uploaded into cyberspace and turning into Max Headroom. But instead of having secret superpowers like flight, his alter ego Max Headroom has the superpower of basically satirical media criticism. Um, It's very 80s, very Gen X. And the clip that we listened to was actually an ad for Max Headroom that aired on Canadian television. So even ads for the show were making fun of ads, you know, making (laughs) making fun of it was like sort of self-parodying media. So in each episode, we see Edison investigating a story. He has his trusty video recorder, which is shaped like a machine gun in some of the episodes. Um, Meanwhile, Max is satirizing media from inside cyberspace. And oftentimes, Max is actually making fun of Network 23, which is where Edison works. So it's this very self-conscious form of media representation where we're seeing journalism that's being heroized, but we're also allowed to kind of make fun of the corporate entities that boost that um, journalism. The other thing that we see in Max Hedrum that becomes a staple of cyberpunk are these kind of punk rock media jammers. And we see them throughout Max Headroom. They're people who are able to break into TV signals and broadcast uh, pirate news. (laughs) Um, And they have pirate TV stations in their vans. And a lot of cyberpunk authors from William Gibson to Neil Stevenson included journalist characters in their writing who are basically cyborgs. You know, they're covered in recording equipment um, and they're merging together sort of alternative journalism and muckraking with really a slick TV or media presence. Um, And you see this also with Spider Jerusalem, who is a reporter character from the really popular comic Transmetropolitan. Um, And you see it in the X-Files with the lone gunman. So you get all of these characters in the 80s and 90s who are kind of indie media, but they're not journalists who are writing for papers. They're broadcasters. So I would argue that these stories from cyberpunk um, and also from things like the X-Files actually inspire real-life journalists, kind of in the same way that H.G. Wells was inspiring Nellie Bly back in the 1890s. Um, And when we come back, we're going to talk about how modern media was influenced by sci-fi icons like Max Hedrum and how Superman is dealing with the death of print media. Today, we want to talk about Side Note, the podcast hosted by Greg Brown and Mitchell Moffat of ASAP Science. Mitch and Greg are the co-creators of ASAP Science, a YouTube channel where they make science make sense. On their weekly podcast, Side Note, they explain the up-to-date science behind all kinds of stuff, such as how brain fog works, why the James Webb Space Telescope is so awesome, and it is really so awesome, and also whether eating ass is safe. 
They always ask the right questions, and they're incredibly fun to listen to. They go on hilarious tangents with comedians, celebrities, and experts to ensure that you are entertained while also learning a lot. Subscribe to Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts. That way, if anyone asks what's happening in outer space or inside your brain, you can tell them. So let's talk about our current era of death in the print news media, the rise of social media, and a bunch of other stuff. But most importantly, what is going on with Superman? So in 2012, he quit the Daily Planet because he thought the Daily Planet was like a corrupt, terrible, corporate, such and such. Um, And actually, the person who was writing uh, Superman at that time said that Superman would be more likely to start something like the Drudge Report or Huffington Post, (laughs) which even at that time was kind of an outdated reference. So, Charlie Jane, what the heck is going on with Superman and his relationship to the media in the media? So Superman has been struggling with his role as a journalist and what kind of journalist he should be since at least the 70s, if not earlier. Like, in the 70s, there was a period where Superman kind of quit the Daily Planet and became a newscaster. He became an anchor on a local TV news station. And it was, like, never clear how he could, like, be on the air reporting the news and, like, rush off to, like, save a busload full of kids without anybody noticing. But they did that. That was, like, several years that they were doing that. And then, yeah, more recently, there's been, like, this flirtation with trying to, like, move towards, like, blogging. And both Superman and Supergirl have kind of been bloggers at times. Well, this goes back to CatCo because we really don't know. CatCo (laughs) is is kind of a print magazine (laughs) and kind of a blogging site and kind of a, you know, it's just, like, it's everything. It's, like, some kind of weird media, like, blob. And it's, it's never clear exactly what Catco does. But yeah, the most recent Superman show, Superman and Lois, is really all about the crisis of print media. Like, it's super interesting because the Daily Planet has been bought by, like, this evil rich person who turns out to be actually an alien, but that's kind of a minor spoiler. And, you know, Lois and and Clark both have to leave Metropolis and move to Smallville, and then Lois ends up working for the local paper in Smallville, and it's all about, like, whether this local paper can can survive corporate consolidation and whether it's still possible to even have local news. And the show actually, to its credit, makes a real effort to deal with these questions and kind of noodle over them in a really, like, a pretty thoughtful way. I feel like this kind of, like, it kind of gets to a lot of, like, how can our institutions in general survive in this new era of social media and like in this new era of, you know, decentralized opinions um, and whether it's possible to to have like journalism as we've known it. And, you know, of course, usually when we see journalists on these shows and in these comics, they're mostly writing opinion anyway, as far as I can tell. It's you never there's always. Yeah. yeah it's super Although weird. Superman does uncover, like you said, I mean, Superman uncovers corruption and like, you know, actually does seem to engage with the world. And I feel like Lois Lane does even more so. So maybe that's why she's become a more central character in things like Superman and Lois. I feel like one of the things I like about Superman and Lois is that Lois is really the journalist of the family. And Clark is just sort of like, yeah, I used to do do journalism. Now I'm kind of a dad. He's a house husband. (laughs) He's a house husband. I think that's that's good. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that strikes me about the contemporary era is that we also have super villain journalists mm-hmm. showing up, um, particularly because 
you know, there's now the opportunity for them to spread misinformation online. Right. Um, but also, like, okay, I just want to run this idea by you. I was thinking about how when Stephen Colbert first launched his show and he was playing like a fake right wing mm-hmm. news um, commentator. And I was like, is that a supervillain show? Like, it's his alter ego, right? Or is it? I don't even know. It was super confusing. It was it was kind of a supervillain. I mean, he was definitely playing like kind of a a disruptive figure who is kind of like, you know, yeah, I think it would, supervillain is probably the right word. Yeah, I think yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I feel like even in our semi-real news space, there are people who are playing with this idea of like the supervillain journalist figure. Yeah, and you do get characters showing up sometimes who are just kind of, they're either so unscrupulous about trying to get the story by any means, or they have an agenda and they're just going to mislead the public in order to kind of like, you know, push through something terrible. And you, I I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, unfortunately, but I feel like that's a character that turns up sometimes, like the unscrupulous kind of, you know, misleading, sleazy journalist or like the kind of, Obviously, the kind of paparazzi journalist is also a figure who turns up sometimes. Oh, yeah, definitely. The other thing that we're seeing is a new kind of media critique, um, which I would, again, trace back to Max Hedrum-style journalism and science fiction journalism, which is what we see in Mr. Robot. And that show is partly about creating memes. And no, Elliot Alderson, our main character, isn't a journalist, uh, but he he does make memes. He's basically a shit poster. And at one point, really early in the show, in the first season, his alter ego, Mr. Robot, posts this video that goes viral. Hello, Evil Corp. We are F Society. Over the years, we've been watching you. Your financial abuse of the poor, your corruption of governments, your cover-ups of the murder of innocent, ordinary citizens, all for the sake of profit. This is why we at F-Society have decided you must die. We are malicious. This is obviously an effort to explore what's happening with modern journalism and what's happening with uh, media communication. Um, when we watch the full video that go- that goes viral that Mr. Robot has created, we see images of Julian Assange, who created WikiLeaks. And that's itself a kind of journalistic experiment, you might say. And so I think that Mr. Robot is, again, playing with those themes that we saw in Max Headroom um, and also playing with trying to deal with what does it mean now that news is all social media and is all just um, people shitposting. The other thing I wanted to point out is that the Mr. Robot meme that we just listened to was also inspired by a real-life incident that was inspired by Max Headroom back in 1987, Some folks whose identities I think are still unknown managed to jam TV signals at Chicago TV stations and interrupted a sports event and then later interrupted a Doctor Who Mm -hmm. broadcast. And they uh, they what they were dressed as Max Headroom and basically just rambled and said a bunch of completely bizarre crap. They did make fun of nerds uh, when they broke into the Doctor Who podcast. 
Someone using sophisticated equipment managed to briefly and illegally override broadcast signals on WGN-TV and WTTW. Basically what we have is science fiction inspiring a real-life incident of signal hacking, which then inspired sci-fi again in Mr. Robot, where they signal hack and get out their message from the F Society. So... This is a kind of fiction, nonfiction crossover, which is really a hallmark of media in the fake news age. But I also wanted to talk about how just as we're seeing fake news kind of on the rise as an issue, we're also at this moment seeing a resurgence of muckraking, journalism that investigates crimes and corruption and fights for the little guy. I'm thinking of people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, who created the 1619 Project, um, who's a new model of a very old-fashioned celebrity muckraker. Um, and indeed, her idol is Ida B. Wells, who was a celebrity muckraker of the late 19th century. And we also have people like Edward Snowden, uh, who was the leaker who uh, revealed uh, how much government agencies were surveilling people in the United States. Uh, and then he later fled to Russia, where he still lives and is writing and talking about uh, these issues. And so those are two new models of muckraking and whistleblowing that I think are deeply both inspired by science fiction, but also um, inspiring science fiction at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is a major journalistic figure who turns up a lot is like the journalist who comes on board your ship or comes to your kind of installation and is kind of filming the crew trying to do their business. And I feel like every show has had that in recent years. Battlestar Galactica did that. Yes. You know, Space Island One, which is a show that I'm weirdly obsessed with, had a, an episode about that. Obviously, um, The Expanse has had that. And the character in The Expanse, who kind of shows up and becomes embedded with the crew of the Rossinante, Monica Stewart, you know, she ends up becoming a bigger character in the series as a whole. And as her arc continues, we kind of get she's used as a lens to talk about the line between kind of journalism and and propaganda because she gets hired by the government, by the president, you know, Christian Avasarala, to kind of make films to to help people sympathize with the plight of Earth after some attacks. And that goes about as well as you might expect. Um, and, you know, here's a part where Monica wants to talk about the war dead and President Navasarala has to admit that, yep, she did actually have permission to do that. Darcy Okuda, Specialist East Asian Trade Zone. I heard her talking to Sergeant Ebron. Both competitive swimmers, they... They raced once. In the Arabian Sea. They disagreed about who won. Ms. Stewart, are you recording this? Yes. Stop right now. You said I had full access. You're right. I did. So... My question is, as we think through this stuff, is, you know, as we're watching journalism go through yet another crisis, as we struggle with these questions around fake news and how does social media transform uh, what counts as truth, what is the imaginative work that these fictional reporters are doing for us? Like, what do they represent? Are they, are they just a reflection of what's going on? Is it a reflection of our hopes? Are they not even really reporter figures? Like, is it, did the reporters stand in for some other kind of person? What do you think? I think that, you know, increasingly, 
because of a lot of the work that was done in the 70s and 80s to sort of become media savvy and to kind of critique the media and to have like people within the media critiquing themselves, I think that there's like this really intense awareness that journalists are often kind of sliding into propaganda and that like, you know, the line between quote unquote objective journalism and, you know, serving someone's agenda is often super wobbly. And, you know, one of the things that comes up with characters like Lois Lane is that, you know, she's super compromised. She's married to Superman. Anytime there's a story, like this happens a lot in Superman and Lois, but also it's a thing that happens in general. Anytime there's a story involving Superman, she has to leave out crucial facts and basically mislead her readers in order to protect her husband. And it's like kind of, you know, it's kind of compromised. But I think generally these days when you see a story about journalism, either they're kind of an irritant, they're like poking into things that we don't want them to poke into, or more likely they're somebody who's super compromised, who is kind of trying to navigate this line between, you know, actually reporting the facts as, you know, objectively versus like, protecting someone who needs to be protected or keeping people who are powerful from like destroying them or just like, you know, kind of getting co-opted a little bit. I feel like the co-optation of of mainstream quote unquote media is a major topic in science fiction because it's a major topic in real life. Like we have in real life, we have this debate over access journalism and whether it's better to try to cultivate relationships with the people in power or whether it's better to be on the outside and have the freedom to report things as you see them. And there's no easy answer to that. Both of those approaches have their pluses and minuses. And ideally, you would find a way to to kind of navigate in between the two. But oftentimes, you know, more mainstream publications do seem to focus on access journalism. And that is a thing that I think science fiction is uniquely kind of situated to to kind of poke at and, and point out the problems with. Yeah, I think that is so true. And and to be clear, when we talk about access journalism, I mean, what we really mean is cultivating relationships with people who can give you inside information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is where the wobbly line is because, you know, people like Woodward and Bernstein, the way that they found out about the Watergate break-ins was that they had this insider who mm-hmm. they nicknamed Deep Throat because Deep Throat was a movie that was really popular at that time. Um, and Deep Throat was someone in the government, very high up, who was basically leaking to them. But that is you know, is that access journalism? Is that something else? It's, I think in the case of Deep Throat, it's pretty clearly whistleblowing. But at the same time, it's hard to tell the difference between something like that and someone who's just like leaking you information to make their particular senator look good. Or like, Mm -hmm. you know, it might be insider information that's valuable, or it might be insider information that, as you said, is just propaganda. Um, I think the thing that science fiction is doing now, um, whether you're looking at The Expanse or Mr. Robot or any number of other stories, is it's basically taking on the role of media criticism. And I think that, as you said, it's in a good position to do that because so much news media is its credibility is being questioned that it's really hard to have 
I mean, we really don't have as much of an alternative press anymore. And it's really hard to trust a media organization that sets sets itself up as critiquing media because it feels like all media is corrupt. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like you can find a source where it's like, oh, but this one isn't corrupt because like, well, this guy's on a substack, so he couldn't possibly be corrupt, <laughs> right? Like he, you know, obviously he's totally independent except for the money that substack is giving him, for example. So I think science fiction, as we know, it allows you to kind of step outside of those immediate political concerns from real life and ask bigger questions about, for example, what does it mean to be a journalist? What does it mean to be a successful journalist? Is it is being a successful journalist just having a lot of followers? Does it mean affecting social change? Does it mean being able to reach people with life-saving information about vaccines? These are the kinds of questions that we see science fiction asking and that are really hard to ask in real-life media. So I think my final thought about this is that one thing that science fiction reminds us is that we do still see good journalists as heroes, and that that kind of heroic figure still works for us. And the other thing is that as I was looking through all these historical examples of science fiction reporting and real-life reporting, I realized that journalism is often associated with futurism, like really good journalism. Um, And I was thinking about Nellie Bly and the fact that she was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use the most modern systems of transit to get around the world. I'm going to like make that actually happen. Or if you look at someone like Ida B. Wells, she was like, I am looking toward a future where like this is going to be illegal. We are not going to let people be lynched anymore. And it's this kind of science fictional aspect to journalism that really lends itself well to these stories about the future um, and stories that allow us to question who gives us information and who we trust. All right. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. As you know, you can always find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. You can find us on Twitter at OOACpod. Thank you so much to our amazing, incredible producer, Veronica Simonetti, who has been with us through almost all 100 episodes. Mm-hmm, pretty and much. Has, yeah. Yeah. I think actually all 100. I think, you know. No, the first few episodes I think we did at my dining room table. No. Veronica edited, oh, edited them. them. I came Veronica in here, is pointing out I came in here late them. at night and we edited together. Yeah, it's true. There was a lot of there was a lot of foolishness at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, we, we were I like, mean, let's record this. It took then, us three times as long. Yeah. So thanks to Veronica for sticking with us through all of our learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks to Women's Audio Mission, which has been our home base when we could get in here um, to record when we weren't being pandemic out into our living rooms. And thanks to Chris Palmer, who's been doing the music for us all along, too. And especially thanks to you, the listener. I just like pointed at you, the <laughs> listener. You can't see it, but I'm I'm pointing at you. Thank you so much for sticking with us too, for listening and for supporting us on Patreon if you can. And if you can't, we're just happy to have you hanging around and thinking thoughts with us. And thanks to you, Annalie. Thanks to you, Charlie Jane. Aww. Aww. <laughs> All right. We'll see you on Discord if you're a patron. And if not, we will be in your ear 
in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.